Hey everyone, this is Luke and welcome to Exploring Kodawari. In this episode, we speak with behavioral scientist Dr. Kurt Nelson about the fundamental question in behavioral science. Why do people do what they do? Kurt has a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology and he's the founder of The Lantern Group, which uses behavioral science to help optimize companies and organizations. But I found Kurt through another of his creations, his podcast all about psychology and behavioral science called Behavioral Grooves. Anyways, in this episode, we work through some of the basic concepts of behavioral science, especially those that are particularly intersecting with our current times. We spoke about the psychology of quarantine, mask wearing, and other changes brought about by COVID-19. We also spoke about the subconscious, cognitive biases, psychological priming, and other weird ways that the brain lies to itself. And lastly, we examined some of the effects that social media is having on our psychology and self-identity. Overall, it was a really great conversation, and we're really happy that Kurt was able to join us. All right, don't forget that if you like the podcast and want to support what we're doing, please leave a rating and a review wherever you listen. And if you really want to support us, click through to our support page where you can give a small monthly donation through our secure PayPal links. Either way, we're just so glad to have you listening and hope you enjoy this episode with Kurt Nelson. All right, we're going here. Kurt Nelson, welcome to Exploring Kodawari. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So I found you um, online. I was listening to your podcast a little bit. Um, and then reading some of your blog. So uh, I'll introduce you a little bit in the intro before this okay. that I'll put in, but can you give a more personal introduction to who you are and what your background is in psychology and behavioral science? Yeah, so I am a behavioral scientist, which basically means that I'm exploring why people do what they do. And behavioral science is a pretty broad term, uh, but my I have a PhD in IO psychology, which is really trying to understand the psychology of business and, and the motivations for employees and, and how work works. But the idea of, of behavioral science goes well beyond that. And that's, that's where my interest lies. That's where I uh, try to put my effort and, and work. And as, as part of that, then uh, have a company that looks at um, applying behavioral science inside of organizations with employees. Uh, but then, as you said, uh, have a podcast myself called Behavioral Grooves, where me and my co-host, Tim Houlihan, uh, interview researchers and, and practitioners and what we call uh, accidental behavioral scientists, trying to understand a little bit about the uh, research behind behavioral science and really understanding the why we think what we think, why we do what we do, and really trying to you know, peel back those different layers of, of what that is. Yeah. One of the things I loved about your podcast is after your interview with whoever you're talking to, you do like a postmortem analysis, just the two of you. <laughs> I think a lot of podcasts don't do that. And you get flooded with all this information, then you're like, all right, that's going to leave my brain by tomorrow. Like, <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Um, what made you choose behavioral? Is it behavioral psychology or is it, is, is that an official you know, subdomain of psychology or? So, so behavioral science is the, is a broader perspective. And so uh, it's, it's interesting, right? It, it has gone through multitude of uh, kind of evolutions as, as you think about it. Psychology has been around over a hundred years now, sociology, very similar. Um, and then you get economics, which has been around for a couple hundred of years. But basically, there's all these social sciences that, that are at work. And behavioral science is basically saying, look, instead of being in these very narrow lanes, let's take a look at how these intersect when we're just looking across uh, uh, different people and what makes them think the way they think and, and act the way they act. And so a, a lot uh, real recently... Uh, a lot of, of focus has been put on what's called behavioral economics. And so economics, which you don't always think of as a social science really is, it's about the behavior of people basically around money and, and how money drives different, different behaviors. Uh, but when you think about that, that had been this pretty consistently stayed uh, classic economics people or perspective, which looked at, you know, how people responded in these different circumstances. And it had this non, it had a basically a rational actor piece in it where it assumed that everybody was right. really <laughs> rational. Behavioral economics took this 
idea of psychology, interspersed it with, with economics and basically said, look, we show that people aren't always rational actors from the perspective of what classical economics would state, right? Mm -hmm. We don't always maximize the amount of money we make. We don't always maximize what is called utility within there, right. but we do it in very predictable ways because we're emotional creatures, because we have feelings and thoughts and we, we, you know, yes, I'm on a diet, but that cake looks really, really good. And <laughs> oh, I want to don't I deserve a little cake. cake after all? I've been good so far. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you when you melded those together, and that was actually in the seventies and eighties where that was starting to to come forward, and then in the nineties and early two thousands, it really kind of broke out. That was right at the time I was getting my PhD and taking a, a perspective of this, and actually from that behavioral economics where it said, "Hey, we're bringing these two fields together." The behavioral science kind of said, hey, why is it just these two fields? Let's take a broader look at this. Let's take this big look. Let's bring sociology in. Let's bring neuroscience in. Let's mm. bring um, anthropology in. All of these things that have to deal with any way that we're looking at the the reasons of-, of Right. Or even like molecular biology with like Robert Sapolsky and stuff, right? <laughs> Oh man, Sapolsky is fantastic. So, I have one yeah. of his quotes later on for a question. Um, I love watching his lectures on YouTube. Oh my gosh, he is—he's um, fantastic. My one, my favorite book of 2020 was uh, "Behave" by him. So, oh, okay, I think that's where this quote co comes from. Um, it's it's yeah, it's a huge book. So I, I, I anybody that um, you know is interested in it, it's big, it's dense. But man, he is a, he's a wonderful writer. He's brilliant. And if you read the footnotes, it is hilarious. So okay. it's just one of those. For things. those who don't, uh, who recognize the name, he's the guy that lived with gorillas basically, right? <laughs> yeah, he has this big beard. <laughs> yeah. He's a, like, looks like a hippie, but man, he's brilliant. A really smart hippie. A, yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Cool. So um, I figured it would be good to just get this on the table quickly and maybe hopefully off the table, the, the whole COVID-19 psychology topic. Um, <laughs> we're both musicians. And so that was a particularly weird time for musicians. I mean, it still is for most yep. musicians. We just moved to this um, new city. She's starting in this new orchestra. I subbed with them last week. It was my first performance in probably 11 months, something like oh, that. Wow. Except playing taps at a funeral, which that's not really performing. That's just... <laughs> An, you know, a, a weird gig to play. Um, so what was your perspective from the psychology behavioral science perspective on COVID-19 and how it affected, you know, humans basically? Yeah. So it, it, what's interesting about COVID um, in, in thinking about this is, is there's some things that you look at and you go, wow, that's really surprising. And other things you go, yeah, not surprising at all in how we responded to it. But this is a little thought experiment that I use often. If you would have asked me in January or even February of 2020, before this kind of became uh, the big deal that it was, like, what would, how would we respond both as individuals, but also as a society, if this became a worldwide pandemic? And if you were put in quarantine for X number of time, that you had these social distancing elements, that you had a massive uh, economic downturn for at least a, a large portion of the of the economy, and that, as you said, you know, many people are without work. Um, you in that moment of looking at that prior to it happening. I think I would have predicted that the world would have collapsed much more than it did and mm. that individuals would be much more impacted from a psychological perspective than they actually were. Mm. That, that the, the wealth of or our ability um, to kind of flex with things and to overcome all of these difficulties, I don't know if I would have anticipated that. Mm, like the resilience said, kind of, of that people found. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, the really interesting piece of this and I, you know, and, and this isn't to take anything away um, or to discount those people who, who do have gone through very um, economic hardships, personal loss from people, you know, being sick or dying um, around them, but we're resilient as a species. 
and and we adapt very well. And there's there's some psychological aspects about that, right? That mm-hmm. that we um, are very good at being able to um, work within the current situation that we have. It's actually from a motivational perspective. There's a thing called the hedonic treadmill, oh, where yeah. Yeah. you know people get a, a raise if you ask them. You know what's going to make your life wonderful? If people are making twenty five thousand, they'll often say, "If I just got a job that made fifty thousand, and then you can track that." And when they get fifty thousand, you ask them, "How are you doing?" They're going good, but man, I'd be really great if I was making you know eighty thousand dollars or ninety thousand dollars because we we adapt, we we grow accustomed to the situation that we're in. There's also the aspect that hey, people who have lost a limb or some other aspects, when you first ask them about it. That's like the world is ending. This is a horrible thing. How am I ever going to go on? But you look at them a year or two down the road and many of them, again, not everyone, but many of them, a vast majority are living a really good life. And some people will say, I I wouldn't want to go back. My life has has actually improved because of this. I have realized who I am and and what it is. Mm. I think there is an aspect of that that comes along with COVID-19 as well, that we have this inner uh, fortitude that comes out where uh, in these times of challenge, in these times of uh, stress, that that can uh, take over. And you can see that in the general population. Now, any individual, there has been lots of research that shows, hey, stress levels have gone through the roof, that there are people who are hurting, economically as you said you you know haven't haven't performed mm-hmm. and so you know lots of people who haven't worked and so they're facing economic downturns and hardships that are beyond pale and yet you know for the vast majority of everybody else life is going on with some changes right so. from an evolutionary perspective it's like of course life goes on like this has happened how many times in our you know hundreds of thousands of years that we were homo sapiens um, mm-hmm. and when you were saying that, I also thought of the Wim Hof method, which we've both done yeah. and the whole idea of like your body awakens things you didn't even know was possible when you put yourself under stress, such as like ice baths or cold showers or something. No, um, I love Wim Hof. Oh yeah. There you go. Oh, nice. So our cold water here in Miami doesn't quite get cold enough now for the shower. <laughs> we're going to invest on an ice bath at some point. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll just have to buy ice and go in the bathtub, I guess. Or that, but, yeah. Um, oh in my New York, gosh, our I, water was so cold in the winter and I was loving, like I got really used to, you know, the first 10, 15 seconds really suck, but then you just get out of the shower and you feel amazing. Mm. Um, the, it's like a pool temperature, a comfortable pool cold here. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's interesting. Even, even here in Minnesota, the difference between a cold shower now in the middle of winter versus a cold shower in the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tell the difference. And so, yes, I, I could, I, I, I feel for you if uh, <laughs> that is something that you, and people don't understand that people who haven't done this, who, who aren't, you know, haven't followed this kind of uh, Wim Hof element, uh, th- they think I'm crazy, right? Because I, yeah. <laughs> I, we have a sauna in the basement and I will go down, I will sauna and then I will cold shower and then I will go back in the hot sauna and then I will cold shower. And just that, that transposition between the hot and cold for me is wonderful, um, but just even just the the coldness. And there's people, um, there's a, a local lake here in in Minneapolis um, uh, where people have cut a hole in the lake, and every every day there's lots of people that are going and swimming in in that cold water. Nice. Even even today, where it's you know negative one degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So wow. Um, yeah, I think there's 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 benefits to it, but again, people who haven't experienced it can't necessarily understand it or really fathom even why that would be pleasurable. Because as you said, those first 10, 15, 30 seconds can aren't aren't usually pleasurable. Yeah, yeah. it even takes like it took me months to get used to even like stay for like five seconds, but then I started taking gradually like ice baths and stuff. It, it just is. Your body was like more reactive. I think um, so. Yeah. To begin with, like I think everybody starts mm-hmm. from a different point. I guess so. Yeah. I I, th- I seem to fa- fa- um, find that stability in the unstable feeling more quickly. Like after a couple of days, I was able to do a few minutes in the cold shower. Mm. And previously, I thought if the cold water hits me, 
my body just freaks out and that's who I am. Like I can't not do that. And then just watching Wim Hof, he gives you this like inner courage. You're like, no, no, I'm going to do it. Set the timer yeah. for 30 seconds. And then by 20 seconds, you're like, I'll do a minute, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It almost like yeah, resets my of, hedonic adaptation in a way. Like, it, well, I think there, I think there, it, there's actually, you know, bodily adaptation, right? So we know, as Wim Hof, Wim Hof talks about, you, you, you grow different fat cells and various different mm -hmm. pieces within your body, um, as how that works. But this, this element is really about how do you, you know, how we, we do adapt to these different situations, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the element of human that is, I think, really interesting is that we are very adaptable people. If you look at how we've grown and, and kind of expanded across the globe, we haven't changed. Um, for instance, you, you don't have uh, other mammals or rep reptiles that haven't adapted somehow in their bodily function when they move from a warm weather climate into a cold weather climate. They're, they're, they actually change physiologically. Mm -hmm. We don't, We but we change because of the way that we work with social groups and our ability to adapt and to then figure out and use our cognitive skills in order to change how we work within nature yeah. and so that's a whole different way right. which sets us apart and, and is really interesting mm -hmm. yeah i think um i have a question here so you were talking about how adaptable we are um i was just curious um is there like the government's gradually extending the lockdown do you think helped with that like adaptation being a little bit easier like if they straight up just said like oh this is going to be our reality for two years do you think people would react differently is it i was just curious it's it's a really good question because there are there are a number of factors going going on with when governments are mandating these different things. There's an there's a there's a psychological concept called reactance, right? Where if we feel like our freedoms are being taken taken away, even if they're not, or even if it's very minimal, that we have this reactance to that, which is really pushing back, pushing back hard, um, and. And so that's a lot when you look at at what is going on with people who you know maybe don't wear masks or don't uh, socially distance or a variety of other factors that are going on. Part of that, not all of it, but part of it can be looked at from a reactance mode. That being said, um, there is an aspect of getting uh, comfortable with things and adapting and and various different aspects of it. There is also a part that as, as humans, we do have certain uh, natural needs. And one of those is, is socialization, right? We, we don't live in isolation. It's very rare to have that hermit. Um, and even that kind of ethos that we had of the, you know, lone ranger out on the, on the Western Plains, you know, they would come back to a campfire, at night with other with other cowboys they they have that social piece and then there's the element of touch and bonding and variety of different pieces so when you look at that overall there are a number of factors that yes we could probably have some positive aspects of saying hey we're we've grown accustomed to this and we're getting used to this and these are the the way that things are doing but we're also getting um you know uh, fatigued, mm. right? And so there are these elements that we really want that social bonding. We really want those elements of having some of those basic needs we we are craving to be met. And it gets harder and harder the longer that it goes on. And you see people just going, all right, I just give up. Mm. And, and that adds to some of the stress that we talked about earlier, but a, a variety of other things. So even just smiling at someone as you yes. pass them on the street like all you see is their kind of crazy like eyes and you can't read what we've evolved to read in, in facial expressions it's yeah, it's I've, been I've, i don't know if i'm um i don't know it just feels like i notice that more than other people like uh, yeah. i try to take my mask off if i'm outside and not around people because i need to just feel like i'm seeing the world and the world is seeing me not you know, like seeing it from behind something. It just really messes with my mind a little bit more than I thought it would. Same. Which is really actually, again, when we think about that, you know, 30% of our brain is based on our visual aspects of which uh, much of that was developed 
theoretically, right? There's the, the, the idea is much of that was developed so that we could read other people's faces um, because that is that indication. Thinking about this evolutionary part for the last couple hundred thousand years as homo sapiens that we had, we lived in tribes. We lived in these small groups. And the biggest danger that we faced was not necessarily, uh, you know, the animals that were out there. It was, it was, are we going to be part of the tribe or people within the tribe? And so are you making somebody mad? Are you pleasing somebody? And so we have learned to be able to read those facial expressions, micro expressions are, are you know, these fleeting moments that happen in less than a second. And yet yeah. we, we innate these, these elements, this emotional cue from those, is somebody happy with us? Is somebody pissed off at us? Um, are they in know, threat? Are they, are they angry? Yeah. You know, and we respond then appropriately. And so when you cover, as you said, with a face mask and you cover up, you know, a major portion of, of your face, we're taking a lot of that away. And so to your point, it's very difficult for people. And just, you know, we, those, did you ever see that ad where it was, you know, the, somebody opened a door for them and then the woman smiled at him and then he went in and he smiled at somebody else and they did a nice, you know, and it was this oh, whole transference of yeah. this these smiles and these nice deeds. And that is something that doesn't happen if you are wearing a mask. And, and so there are those negative consequences of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, people, the, the governments or organizations are so institutions are so concerned with getting people just to put the mask on that they don't want to even admit to some of the downsides of it, even if it's a short term safer. Um, I wonder for kids, especially if they're at that very crucial age of, you know, I don't know, two, three, four, five, where they're learning how to read facial expressions and understand other people's intentions and build theory of mind and all of that. I wonder if this will, we'll find out in five years what this did, you know? Yeah. We've had conversations with folks on, on the podcast that we had is that this is really a, a large behavioral science, uh, experiment right. when we look at this, right? You look at before and after and the variety of different impacts that this has had across society. And we don't know, we, we, we don't understand. Again, I hope because of the resilience that we have and our adaptability and the flexibility that we are as humans, that it won't have a negative impact on our children, right? I have a 11 year old and a 14 year old and they're doing distance learning and they don't have, you know, my son who is just, he's a freshman. He's never been to a freshman class outside of online, mm. you know, that has to have an impact, but I'm hopeful, you know, that, that, that the negative impact of that will be minimal and that we will be able to, to move forward with it positively from, from this moving forward. Yeah. Speaking of facial expressions, that's, this is exactly one of the things in a book I'm almost finished with, um, I don't know if you've read it, Hidden Motives, like The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hansen. I, I have not. So so it's basically about um, that the elephant in the brain is the fact that we often have multiple motives for why we do things, mm -hmm. but a lot of them are not so kind. They're usually selfish. And so we it's i think it was robert trivers who said we we learn to deceive ourselves so that we can better deceive others so that we are not honest with ourselves about our own intentions because people are so good at reading your face if you know the truth and then you're saying some other motive for why you did something they'll read right away that you're not being honest so it's best to keep those true motives in your subconscious so that you believe the lies that you're telling the world kind of thing yeah, and he goes through um a lot of economic data that just shows here's why we say, you know, we educate children in this way. And here's the data that shows we're not getting close to that mark. Why would we not change something? Here's um, the data that shows uh, different things in the medical field. And, or, so he goes through different areas of life. And I think he's an economist um, uh, or he's, he has a background in, in, in um, economics, but I forget exactly what his, degree was in. But anyways, it's a really fascinating book. It's called The Elephant in the Brain. And um, hopefully we're having him on the podcast in a few weeks. We've been back and forth um, scheduling him. But so I guess my question would be something like, how do you think about the subconscious and its effect on behavior? I've also been reading, starting to read Jung, 
Oh, um, okay. Which <laughs> it's, that's a, a mind mind bender. Um, but yeah, what, Jungian, what's your uh, yeah Jungian psychology is is interesting. I mean, there's there's lots of people who who uh, abide by it, and and you know a lot of the empirical research on that is is lacking, um, at least in, in in recent things. That that being said, unconscious is definitely there, right? I mean, the, the, we we have an unconscious brain that impacts us much more than we would like to think. Um, mm -hmm. And so what you were, it was interesting when you were bringing that up, I was, it, uh, it reminded me of cognitive, cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. right? This idea that, hey, if I, my actions and the self-concept of myself are not in alignment, in other words, I, I, I want to be a, a good person, right? I have this, the self-image of myself as being a helping good person. And then I see a homeless person on the side of the road and I just go past him without, you know, helping them out. Mm -hmm. You know, th there's a dissonance there. There's, there's this, all right, if I'm a good person, wouldn't I want to help this person out? And yet, you know, I'm not doing it. So that adds this tension in my brain. Mm -hmm. And so we do a variety of different ways that our brain circumvents that. So it's like, oh, well, if I gave that person money, they would just spend it on alcohol and, and you know, go further down that line. So I'm actually helping them, you know, yeah. by not giving them money. And we tell ourselves these little stories to make ourselves feel better. Or we do this thing of confirmation bias where we'll, we'll look at things and we'll just say, hey, this, this aspect is actually not as bad. They're you know, they're not, off, they're bad off. They look like they have good shoes, so they can't be really that poor, mm -hmm. right? So they're just trying to fool me when in fact, you know, that we, we don't know that, but, you know, our brains work at a very subconscious level, giving us that information. Yeah. Um, um, well, I was going to say, this is like a coping mechanism, I guess. Like we cannot really exist without this, right? I cannot imagine not having that little voice, like probably... I don't know, you'll become a sociopath, I guess, in that case. Like, I don't know. It's it, No, it's very true. And, we, and, it, and it happens at a, at a perspective where we don't even realize that it's going on, which is, which is part of this. And so um, some of the work that, that I've researched and, and have brought into organizations is a concept um, I'm called, it's behavioral priming, right? This idea that um, things that we see or experience um, that are that aren't necessarily related to a behavior that we're doing uh, impact us in ways uh, in subsequent behavior. So, for instance, um, research by John Barge, who's a who's one of the leading people on this, did this thing where basically uh, they're they're riding up in an elevator. Um, the the person is asked to hold a, the person is asked to hold a cup of coffee while this other person is doing something or hold a cup of ice cold Coke, right? And then they get out and then they, they go and they meet somebody. And then subsequently they say, hey, what did you think about that person? And the people who held the warm coffee felt that that person was uh, nicer, more egalitarian, had all of these very positive aspects versus the person who held the cold um, Coke uh, thing of ice, uh, you know, glass full of ice said, oh, that person is distant. That person has all mm -hmm. these, you know, more negative consequences. And this is, you know, they did a massive research on this, multiple people, and it was a significant, you know, perspective. And if you ask them, it's like, you know, do you think that holding that warm cup of coffee or holding a, a glass of, of ice cold Coke had an impact? They would say, no, oh, you're crazy. Of course not. Why I'm just a rational actor. They were just nice. That's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and there's lots of those types of examples, you know, um, it, some, some fun ones where like people uh, had a random stranger coming up to two women on the street in France and uh, asking them for their phone number. And the number of times that that happened was really, really small. And I'm forgive me, I don't know the exact numbers on this, uh, except for in one situation. Um, and it was still relatively small, but it was multitude of times greater that the woman would give a um, phone number out. And that was when that person asked them while they were standing in front of a flower shop. Mm. So, you know, this idea of this subconscious thing, flowers, romance, various different pieces. So all of a sudden, they were more likely to give the, you know, the researcher that uh, their phone number. 
when they were standing in front of a flower shop as opposed to standing in front of, you know, just a normal food store or, you know, a telephone place or whatever else. So Which those are those weird things about the subconscious, right? That it's not just like a dumb, it's not dumb. It's, it's very, um, there was another priming one where isn't, is this true where they can sort of flash an image so quickly that you don't consciously realize you saw it, but it can still, I think it was something with, they, they flashed um, a, a picture of the ocean or something. And then when mm-hmm. they said pick from these random laundry detergents, they're way more likely to pick Tide. And yeah. so that means like, they're not just, it's not a easy correlation. It's like the ocean has tides and like you have to make some kind of correlation that's not just easy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I'm not, I'm not aware of that, but that sounds like what the, the research that I'm aware of does. Mm-hmm. And really what they're, what the hypothesis is around this is that, you know, our brains are a set of neural networks and some of those neural networks get activated. They get stronger. Um, it's easier to do. That's how memory works. And it's why we learn, you know, when we study something over and over, we do something, it's how habits form various different pieces, all these neural networks get, get there. But what they're, what uh, the hypothesis is, is that by seeing that picture of an ocean, that activates some neural networks in our brain that are mm. tied to ocean, water, various different pieces. And then when you see the different laundry detergents, Tide is easier to come to mind because mm. those others are already pre-activated. You have, you have primed the pump, basically. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, therefore, you're, you're more likely to you know, to, to gravitate towards that or to do whatever that behavior is. Now, what's really interesting is, is you know, they, in these priming experiments, it, it has to be something that you're already, you have a goal around or various different things, or you feel a good component about Tide. Like if you felt Procter & Gamble was horrible, right? And was, you know, polluting the world and you associated that with Tide detergent, seeing the ocean probably wouldn't get you to pick that. It would be some other one. But, mm-hmm. you know, for people who don't have that, who just have a general understanding of, hey, Tide's a, a good detergent. I've used it in the past. Then it probably activates those those right. um, neural networks in order to make that happen. And then you make up a reason why you pick Tide. That's that's <laughs> what I find fascinating. It's like the famous split brain experiments where they tell one side of the brain after the corpus callosum is split, right? They say, go yeah get up and go get a Coke from the machine. And then you ask the other side, why'd you just get up? They're like, oh, I don't know. Thirsty, wanted to take a break or whatever. Not yeah. even realizing that they just were responding to what was t- written on the on the screen for their, I guess, for their left eye, right hemisphere or something yep. like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those split brain pieces, right? Where people have had whatever um, the... Uh, disease it was or whatever they, they needed to do in order and they, they cut that um, connection between the two halves of the brain. It really goes to to what you're talking about. There's that element too where we think of um, why it is that we do something uh, is always from a, a real good rational perspective. And one of the things that I love about um, you know behavioral science is that it says, that we are, you know, we're good at rationalizing mm-hmm. um, uh, much better than we are as as being rational beings, but right. we're good at rationalizing the reasons that we did a behavior. So, right. I think that I was listening to a Hidden Brain episode. Do you know that podcast? Mm, I love that broadcast. Yeah. yeah. So there was one uh, with Ian McKilchrist about his um, book, The Divided Brain, The Master and His Emissary. And it's just about the differences in how the two hemispheres process information and so he's talking about a stroke patient who, um, because they lost all feeling of their left arm, mm-hmm. or it, it could be the other arm, I, I get confused with where language is and whatever, but basically they somebody said, you know, whose arm is that? And they just made up something that virtually made no sense. They said, oh, it's my grandpa's arm. Yeah. Because they had no identification with the arm, but they had to explain why it's there. And it's like that, I guess that left brain rationalizing can just make up even the most ridiculous lie as long as it can believe it and like keep things like, all right, I'm explaining the world around me. Everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really the last part that you just said. It's, it's we as humans want to live in a world that we can comprehend. 
And it's, it's, it's a really interesting component and it leads to a lot of, I think some of the conspiracy theories, some of the other, you know, elements that are going on in, in our world today, Mm -hmm. uh, because we, we don't like the uncertainty. We don't like living in this kind of gray area, this quagmire, right? We want, Mm -hmm. we want things to be more, um, black and white and we want to understand that hey this is how the world operates and this is how i fit within it mm-hmm. and the world doesn't necessarily operate like that now that's not saying everybody falls in that but in general um we tend to lean more towards certainty than uncertainty and there's lots of you know wonderful research that points to that but that what you're just saying is is absolutely right as long as we can have a story that kind of explains and rationalizes what it is. It doesn't matter if it's as kooky as it can be, but if we believe it, then we're fine with it. Right. It's the famous George Costanza line, right? It's not a lie if, if, um, if I if, remember, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jerry has to pass the lie detector test for something. <laughs> Which is which is really there, and, and and you think about you know you look at the world out there today, and there are actors, um, not actors in in actually um, you know uh, yeah. studio movie actors, <laughs> but just actors in on the national stage or in the world stage, and you kind of wonder, do they actually believe some of the things that they are saying? Mm-hmm. And you know, people go, oh, they they can't, and I I actually believe that to a certain degree there is a certain belief that they have of about what it is that they're saying because um otherwise there would be so much cognitive dissonance within them um either that or they are really good at rationalizing after the fact that they're they're doing this because of these reasons and they're okay with with telling people lies but i think for the for, for many of them they actually do believe they they truly you know, and at some point their brain has said, yep, this is the story and we're going to believe the story. And then the confirmation bias kicks in, motivated reasoning kicks in, which are these behavioral biases that say our brain will actually decipher information that we get in such a way that it will reinforce our pre-held beliefs, even, even if the, the data is there. That, that points directly opposite to it, we will pick the one piece within that data that we can either say, oh, this data isn't, isn't valid, or the piece within that data that says, oh, see, this actually reinforces what I say, even if the other 99% of the article or whatever it is, the data that we have is totally against what it is. Yeah. And that's the way our brain operates. And so... Um, and, and I remember my mind being blown a couple of years ago, I was listening to um, the Very Bad Wizards podcast, mm-hmm. and they had on Molly something, I think she's at Yale, maybe a psychologist at Yale, and I, I just wrote this quote in my phone. She said, uh, bias is the brain's strategy for dealing with too much information. And it, it, the idea was that bias exists at all levels from the moment the data is coming into your senses to how you you know, decide what's important and what's not important. And the the Laurel Yammy, was it Yanny or Yammy? I think so, yeah. Yep. Um, right. And and of course you could imagine people getting in fist fight. No, it says Laurel. No, it says Yammy. And I feel like politics is so much like that. It's like we're seeing the same reality, but seeing you can't see without constructing. We we don't just see the world. We build the world inside of our mind. And how we do that is very different depending on you know, who you are, how you were raised, you know, uh, are you religious? Are you, you know, all these factors make you build different realities. And that made me certainly get in less political fights with friends and family when I realized like, oh, they just see a different reality. Like, yeah, that's fine. We have to figure out maybe <laughs> how to bridge that gap if, if it's a close relationship or not. But, you know, it's not that they literally, they, they, they feel just as right as I feel. <laughs> Yeah. And that, that actually, what you just said is, I think, an interesting way of thinking about that, right? So, whether you're a, a Democrat or a Republican, you know, think back at when you, like, how you felt when your candidate lost and and say, you know, that was how, how hurtful or how painful that was for you. And then go, that's exactly what the other side is feeling, Um in the time that their candidate lost. Mm-hmm. And 
it's no less real for them than it was for you. It may actually be more real for them, depending upon how strong a belief system you have around um, who, who your candidate is. And that can help. That can help, as you said, just bridge that divide uh, between because you go, yeah, I get it. I, I get that emotional response that we have. Um, and as humans, we all have that emotional response. Um, and so it, it, it can help. It's not, it's not a pankia. It's not going to solve, you know, all of the problems that we have, but at least it might lead to better understanding yeah. and, and hopefully with better understanding, we can, we can maybe get closer together and be able to find, uh, our shared values, which again, all of the research that has been out there when you, when you ask people things and you put them so that they are non-political, we are much more alike, yeah. right? As soon as we can, as soon as it gets a political perspective on it, though, uh, we could be in exact agreement on something as if it's stated in a way that uh, doesn't come across as political. But as soon as you put, oh, well, this was a this was a Democratic uh, initiative or this was a Republican initiative, you see the two sides separate and mm -hmm. they feel very different about it. Which again if you were a rational actor, you would say, no, let's look at this from the merits of whatever it is that we're exploring. But right. that isn't how our brain works. Our brain works, as you said, starts deciphering information. Biases are a way of, of helping us comprehend the world um, in, a, in a way that allows us to not have to process everything so hard. It gives us shortcuts. It's these heuristics that we use yeah. in order to work through the world in a way that we're not analyzing, should I pick up this cup of coffee and move it towards my mouth? Am I thirsty or not? No, mm -hmm. we just, we actually just do it. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are some of the factors that go into that. I mean, I think I figured out how to do this way later in my life. I'm, I'm Turkish. So I grew up in Turkey and I was very invested in Turkish politics. Like, and in there and the cases, I think like you can't even pick your own president basically we're at that point like there are elections but there's no democracy let's be honest <laughs> and i th after i moved here actually i started really getting like why these people vote for him like why whoever's supporting supports him and it just made so much sense for me and it put me at such ease like understanding where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing that uh, yeah i cannot even be in a dialogue i think with someone I don't know, like just who hasn't found that metacognition, yeah, that sort basically. of like step back and see, okay, this is the landscape of what people are playing on and yeah. not be inside of it. Yeah. yeah. Even though I'm on the same side with those people, I cannot stand them talking about the other side, you know, like, yeah. I'm like, how do you not <laughs> empathize with these people? So yeah. it's the, um, you, have you heard of the steel man, um, technique? So, oh, as opposed to the straw man? Yeah. 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 So like, this is something we've done in our relationship. Mm -hmm. Like if we're getting in a fight. We'll just like hit the pause button and be like, all right, you build my case as strongly as you can so that I agree with it and I'll do the same for you. And then by the end of that, we're like just hugging and then the fight's over. Like, <laughs> because like you just have to like pause and like really be like, all right, I can't just do what my brain wants to do, which is, you know, make a straw man of you and make it look stupid. And I'll, I have to actually make you agree with how I built your argument. And then yeah. the process of doing that dislodges you from that you know, binary, you know, us versus them type thinking or whatever. Yeah. I loved you talked about the metacognition part of that. And then it, it also reminded me of debate, right? So my my son was in debate when he was in middle school. And, and part of debate is you don't know which side you're going to be arguing before a debate happens, right? Sure. It's this, yeah. whatever the contentious issue is. And then you get, you know, you take this side or you take that side. And so with that, they have to prep. And when they're prepping, they have to, they look at both sides, which, and they have to develop their arguments based on, again, you're competing to who has the better arguments. And so it's exactly that steel man kind of thing. And so I yeah. think debate is one of those great elements for, as if you're raising kids to try to get your kids into, into debate, because it teaches them that there are two sides to most issues. And that if you look at them, you can find reasons why both sides are appropriate. It's not saying that one side isn't right and one side isn't wrong, but you can, at least as you were saying, I can hopefully understand how, 
why the other side might see this as this. Yeah. Like, for instance, I'm usually right, even though I admit I can see her perspective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thank yes, you. Got the point. See, a psychologist has agreed with me. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's confirmation bias right there, you, you know. <laughs> Um, I also had a, to- a topic that I just wanted to bring up, like on your opinion on, on human behavior and psychology of social media. We watched that documentary that, that was popular a couple months ago. What was it? The Social Dilemma? Yeah, social right? Dilemma. Um, did, you, did you happen to see that? I did not see that. I've heard a lot about it. I need to, I need to watch it. So it, it's on my list of things to do. Gotcha. Yeah, there's no new information there, I think. Like maybe a couple, but it was very disturbing to it see all of that. kind of confirmed what I yeah, suspected, same. which is like, I almost feel like this these social media algorithms are getting to know me better than I know myself. They know exactly when to ping you. They know at this time of day, you're more likely to be distracted. And when, when it gives you an alert, you're more likely to click it. It knows what people to put to keep you scrolling. And these algorithms are learning your behavior with so much data. And the people that build them don't even understand how they work because they just give an algorithm a goal and then it self-teaches itself, um, I forget the, the phrase in computer science, but like there's their self-learning algorithms and they're basically in this closed box where they don't even fully understand how they work. They just know they t- tell them to maximize screen time. And so they're yeah. just trying to grab your attention as much as possible because that's ad revenue for them. Yeah. There's uh, not having seen the social dilemma, but but having done some um, work in this area, or at least having conversations with with people on our podcast mm-hmm. about this, is there is an interesting component to this, and and there is a behavioral science aspect of this that is very concerning for me, um, because when you marry uh, big data, AI, the technology technological power that is out there with the algorithms that you were talking about, and you actually marry that with some of the the insights from behavioral science, you are creating, in essence, a very powerful tool that impacts us. We talked about priming and various, the subconscious components, and you're, you're impacting people at a very, you know, base level within our brains at that Mm. subconscious level, almost to a degree that they're not even aware of. Um, So there's, there's some really interesting research, right? That you can, um, if you've ever taken a personality profile, you know, it's pretty intense. You fill out uh, forms, any good one, not just the, you know, your, your local, Hey, are you a, uh, (laughs) not your Buzzfeed one? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Are you in Gryffindor or are you uh, a Slytherin or or whatever it is? When you look at like an an ocean, a big five, um, you know, some of the, the larger, you know, validated personality profiles, they're pretty intense. You have to go through and they take a while and they're, they're really looking at who you are as a person and, and they're, they, they work pretty well. There's, there's ability now by just looking at the likes that you have on your social media feed. And it's, it's like, and again, forgive me, I don't have the exact numbers here, but you know, after 15 likes, they can do as good as like your boss. They can understand who you are as a person, as good as your boss can. After a hundred likes, it's as good as a friend. After 250 likes, it's as good as your spouse. And so mm-hmm they can actually predict your personality. And so when once you have that personality profile of somebody, then you can you can understand what are the triggers that are going to get them to emotionally respond. And this has been, you know, part of the thing with, um, you know, Cambridge Analytica and mm-hmm. a variety of different factors that they were looking at. Now, there's there's debate whether or not they were actually able to do that in various different pieces, but the the element that it is out there, and to your point that social media is designed to this, so there's an ethical component of saying, hey, are you getting people to do things that they wouldn't normally do and at a level that isn't necessarily conscious to them so that they can opt out or say no to it? Mm-hmm. And And it's scary. And yeah. it, it gets to this point of, you know, it's that, that idea of, of mind control. You know, if you look at like George Orwell in 1984, or if you look at, you know, Aldous Huxley and A Brave New World, 
we're much more in the brave new world um, mm-hmm. that we're actually living in. It's, it's like, oh, I'll, I'll just give you enough pleasure knowing that that will keep you sedated and it will keep you, as you said, more more time on the social media app, more more scrolling, more things so I can earn more money from you. And yet it doesn't take into account what the damage that that does um, yeah. for people. And so I think that's a really important piece that behavioral scientists need to look at. But also, I think as a society, we need to need to better understand. Yeah. And unfortunately, emotions like rage or outrage and just negative things like that motivate you a lot more than, oh, this is a beautiful story of a of a soldier coming home from the war and, you know, okay, that's nice. But like, I want to see that video of this protest or whatever, you know, and that seems to spread on social media way more than positive messages that are usually a little bit more complicated to, you just don't want it as much. It's like more junk food for your mind or something. Also, even the positive messages have really interesting motivations behind them. Like it doesn't look as genuine. You're like, oh, it almost looked too staged. Like you were doing all of this to set this perfect view. Like, I don't know. Yeah, social media seems to have made a lot of people that I've seen become almost characters of themselves, like personas of themselves. And then you meet them in real life and you're like, weird, you're this way. And then like when it's time to do your Instagram story, you just like become this different thing. And I'm sitting there like, what are you doing? <laughs> we were having dinner. Why are you on your phone acting like there, that? <laughs> it's it's curating, right? You're curating your life and you're able to pick those pieces that are going to put you in whatever light it is that you want people to look at, which isn't real life. It, it is this self-selection and even acting to a degree. And that's, I mean, acting, right? Where you are, you're playing a persona um, and, and, and living up to that and putting that out for the world to see because you want to have a certain social identity. And that social identity is, is then it doesn't always match what the real you is. And so those are always interesting, right? But that's to your point. um, Those are there going back to this idea that rage and anger and various different pieces are what we look at. We're wired, um, again, evolutionary, we're wired to pay attention to the negative. It's called a negativity bias. Mm. And and partly that's for our survival. When we were in those, you know, tribes, if you, if you heard a crash in the, in the forest, you know, did you ignore it or did you pay attention to it? Because right. that crash in the forest could be a saber-toothed tiger coming and you need to be prepared and you need to then extrapolate out that this could be a saber-toothed tiger. And so now I need to get worried. And now your your endorphins get, you know, going, your your uh all of the hormones within your body are putting you into this fight flight mm-hmm. piece, right? And so you you have that. Um and it's and, better to assume it's a tiger rather than think, oh, a branch probably fell and it is a tiger. Like false negatives are are much, um, or false positives are much better than false negatives, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so to that point, right, we're we're wired in a certain manner to pay attention to those, and and then when we get that emotion, uh, to going back to that point of. We want to feel like we're in control and oftentimes that anger and various different pieces, the way that we gravitate to, you know, the sense of control is, is to go even deeper down that rabbit hole Um, because I I can't ignore it, can't ignore that feeling of unrest, Um, you know, my, one of my favorite, we, we interviewed, um, uh, oh, I'm going to forget his name, uh, uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I forget. I forget the researcher, and I apologize um, um, to this. The person. harder you try, the the further it will be buried <laughs> in your subconscious. <laughs> exactly. But he he brought up this wonderful story. He 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 did work on conspiracy theories, and um, you know the, this this concept that he brought up, I thought was fascinating because he said, "Look, I would go in, and uh, my my son, who was three or four at the time, you know, would wake up and was super scared at night." And, you know, he thought there was a monster in the closet and this idea, and he would go in and he goes, look, there's no monster in the closet. And, and his son said, and I'm misquoting this, but he said, if there's not a monster in the closet, then why do I feel like this? Why do I feel so scared? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's this idea that we, we have to assume certain things for the way that we're feeling. 
And there was some really interesting research, which actually went back to some of the cognitive dissonance work that back in the 1930s, there was a large um, earthquake in northern India up in by the um, Himalaya mountains. And so it wrecked a number of um, buildings in various different theses. It got a lot of news play. And then, but a couple hundred miles away, it was kind of felt as a light tremor and nothing really happened. Buildings didn't fall down and various different things. But people, um, actually kind of glommed on to all of these conspiracy theories around it hundreds of miles away, not actually at the point where it happened and all the mm. construction happened, but they said, oh, this was, you know, designed by the government or various different pieces. And part of that was because they saw the news feeds about this and they felt this angst within them, but they couldn't necessarily go, well, I didn't see anything here. So they had to they had to put that angst and make up a, a reason for why they were feeling that. Yeah. And so that is some of that element of that, you know, the, if there's not a monster in the closet, then why do I feel so scared? Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting. Way I wonder if there could that. be an analogous thing with COVID. Like, are you more likely to believe COVID some hoax or some kind of conspiracy if you're just, not affected by it and haven't known anybody who's gotten it versus being a doctor that works with it every day or something. Um, that could be an interesting area. Yeah, and it, there has been, it's, it's really interesting. And then you get, if, if you do like, if that does happen and you then form a belief and that belief gets anchored into your psyche, you get those people who are even, who get sick themselves or their, their loved one gets sick and they, they will deny it. They mm -hmm. will deny the fact that, well, this can't be COVID. This is something else. And the doctor is right there going, look, here is the test. The test says this. These are the symptoms. Look at this. This is what is happening. And you have that confirmation bias happening because they can't separate that pre-held belief from the actual facts that are being placed in front of them right there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm ready, ready for a few bonus questions to finish. This oh off. my gosh. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, am I putting, getting nervous here? So um, you can say these, you know, like fast answers or you can okay. expand on them a little bit. Depends on the question. Or you can just say skip if you don't want to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the first one is what's the most profound thing that you changed your mind on? Oh my gosh. Um, the fast answers. I got to think about these. Oh, you this is, this is crazy. Uh, I don't know if it's the most profound, um, but I, I think there is this aspect of, and maybe this isn't changing my mind so much, but this idea of what we talked about earlier, this element of understanding the opposite side um, within whatever political or, or you know, opposing viewpoints and, and an ability to, to just look at that and say, you know, these people aren't evil incarnate, which at some point I, I, I felt, right. There was yeah. this idea that, my God, how can you believe that you are just, you're destroying these people's lives or whatever it would be. And now I kind of have some empathy for them. And it, it's through the study of different pieces on that same line Sorry, this is a much longer winded answer than you probably wanted on this. No, go along for it. that same line. Um, knowing this, uh, there's there's a there's a concept within um, behavioral science that's basically that says, look, getting information in and of itself isn't going to change our behavior. And one of the the components around that is this idea that you know even people who study things are still. Uh, uh, you know, impacted by the biases that we have. So mm -hmm. studying behavioral science doesn't make me any better at being able to withhold the biases that I have. Um, and that's an, that's an interesting piece because now I'm always doubting myself. And so that mm -hmm. might be another piece of that you were just talking about yeah. that I'm now yeah. self-conscious about, well, do I hold that belief? Do I really think that, or is this something just a bias that is being, um, that I've held and I really need to re-examine myself on that. Yeah, it, it sets you down the rabbit hole of of, of never-ending doubt. Um, Robin Hanson yep. at the beginning of his book says, you know, you should put this book down now if you're not ready to hear some of these unconscious <laughs> motives that we discovered, because it's yeah. sort of like the red pill from the Matrix. Once you once you once you're out, you're out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, I'll ask the next one. Um, what type of advice do your friends tend to come to you for? Ooh, my friends don't come to me for advice. They know better. Um, <laughs> 
But but with that, no, I think lots of people are really interested in in behavioral science. And so trying to understand why it, and it's mostly like, why is this person acting this way? Not not why they're acting this way, which mm-hmm. is always an interesting co- concept, right? It, they're looking at at other people, and it's this fundamental attribution error. We we always are looking at others and trying to assign why they're doing it, and we usually attribute that to their personality or they're a good person or a bad person, and not so much around the context or the environment that they're in. And yet, when if we were in that same situation and acted the same way, particularly if it's a negative viewpoint of us, we will almost always go, well, I, I did it because, you know, the situation was this and I couldn't do anything else. Yeah. Um, and so, it's it's people come to me asking like, so why do you think they did that? Why, why are they doing this? And mm-hmm. so that's, that's that. Gotcha. <laughs> um, what's something that you are sure is true, or at least as a scientist, if you can't be a hundred percent sure of anything, what's like, you know, the most sure thing in your belief system or structure or whatever? Oh my God. See, scientists, if, if I was an actual scientist, I would say none of this because science is always looking to further understand and, um, and, and explain things. And it, so, it, you know, I go back and you look at the theory of gravity, gravity, right? Isaac Newton had a, it, it described things. It was pretty well set, you know, for most things that we observe, the, his, his law of, of gravity is a hundred percent accurate mm-hmm. yet, you know, Einstein came around and said, Hey, look, here are some things that this is a different way of looking at it. And it explains things actually better. Yeah. Um, than that. So I think from a scientific perspective in, in my field, um, you know, evolution is, is pretty well explored. Yeah. That being said, it's always being nuanced. It's always looking at things from, a you know, new insights being gained on that. Um, everything else, particularly when around behavioral science, uh, we are just at the very beginning of of this and and our insights are constantly changing and the brain is one of the most complex if not the most complex um thing in the universe yeah and so understanding how it works and how it is uh impacted is something that i don't think there's a hundred percent certainty on by anybody yeah i think it was neil degrasse tyson he was talking about the universe or something and then also said cut away one you know cubic um area of your brain and there would be um, whatever amount, like a hundred thousand nerve cells with making a hundred billion connections or something like that. Yeah. Just trying to say like, when we look at the galaxy and see how complex and how many stars and it's inconceivably big, there's inconceivable complexity just within your own head. That's looking at said galaxy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's crazy. But yeah, I agree with the evolution thing. Like what would it have to be? We'd have to figure out that this whole thing's a simulation and the whole evidence was just planted there so that we think, we came from some past, you know. Uh, yeah, and evolved. and I'm a big believer. Actually, the one maybe this is the truth that that I hold is is Occam's razor, right? Yeah. So, you know, go with the if there's two explanations, go with the simpler one. Sure. And yeah. that is typically the way that I I try to operate. Yeah. Um. And then the other the other razor kind of little quote is Hanlon's razor, mm-hmm. which is um, never attribute to malice what can be explained through ignorance or right. stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> um. And and which again I I use all the time in our national conversations and and the things that are going on in government and various different other pieces. Totally. I look and I go, look, it, it's probably not malice. It's just incompetence. So. Yeah. Not a lot of people are bad and know that they're bad and purposefully being bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Last one. I saw somewhere in your one of your bios that you're into beer. What's your favorite beer? Ooh, ooh, I like this question. Um, so it, it depends upon the time. I'm a good, I'm a perfect behavioral scientist here because it's, it's always <laughs> depending, right? Um, but I do like more of a multi-dark uh, type beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I have been, um, there's a local brewery in, in Minnesota called Surly. Okay. Um, and uh, they have some really good IPAs. Uh, but they also have uh, Surly Bender, which is really hard to find. I don't think they're brewing it as much, which is more of a 
of a malty, uh, dark kind of uh, flavorful beer that that's one of my favorites. And if not that, then a, a left hand milk stout is, is oh, okay. on top of that line too. So those are both good for a colder climate, I guess. Right? They are, and, and yeah. perfect for a nice, you know, negative zero winter winter day. Although my wife will go, "What are you drinking cold beer for? You need like a like a hot toddy or a, yeah. you know some <laughs> hot cider or something uh, along this, or like so. a spiked eggnog or something." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mold wine that's heated, yeah. you know. So. Ooh, mold wine, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun for me too. So why don't you let um, people I, know where they can find you too online, social media or website or whatever? Yeah. So if if you're interested at all in, in behavioral science and want to hear more and we we talk with people who are much smarter than than me on the podcast, it's behavioral grooves, and you can just go out to www.behavioralgrooves.com or any of your pod services wherever you listen to to this show um, i'm sure it is it is available as well and you can just search for that there otherwise uh, if you want to reach me twitter is is i'm out on that a lot and uh i'm at what motivates so you can go out and find me there and And i'll link all that stuff in the episode notes as well to make it easier all right thanks for coming on and we will uh let you know when the episode posts. Perfect. All right. Have a good one. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.